Those who should, don't. And those who shouldn't, do. Those who should, don't. And those who shouldn't, do. Friends, forget Las Vegas and Monte Carlo. Australians are the world's biggest gamblers. And it seems we're not very good at it. We have the world's highest losses of gambling per capita. According to a recent report on gambling in Australia, government estimates suggest Australians lose $25 billion a year on legal forms of gambling. In the last 12 months alone, around, 20, uh, around 73% of Australians reported spending money on gambling products. Our most popular gam places of gambling are lotteries and scratchies at 63%, Racing of its various kinds at 39%, sports betting at 34%, and poker machines at 33%. The average Australian gambles away $1,172 a year. The Irish are next at $600 a year, but they've always been more lucky. New South Wales is the gambling capital of Australia. Who would have put money on that? And in 2021, $95 billion flowed through their poker machines. The Melbourne Cup, Australia's famous horse race, has a prize pool for its winner of $4.4 million. But Australians bet $221.6 million on the race itself. One punter even bet $100,000 on a horse in this year's Cup. They both lost. The report also found that when it comes to gambling, Australians are risking more than just their money. Researchers found that gambling in Australia is harmful to, re uh, to relationships, to health, to emotions, to psychology, to finances and to work. And yet despite all the evidence of its harmful effects, so many are still betting against the odds. And so the question becomes, why? Why roll the dice? Why play Russian roulette? Well, government reports tell us that you can win more money and that gambling is a social, acceptable form of recreation and escapism. That's what the government will tell you. But governments also benefit from gambling revenues. It's a cash cow that they're pretty keen to keep on milking. And so I think it's got more to do with certainty, especially during times of uncertainty. You see, we want to know what the future will bring. We like to predict possible outcomes. And when we believe we're right about that, we tend to put our money where our mouth is. But Luke's gospel, friends, doesn't back the favourite. Here's good news for the perpetual underdog. Luke's gospel doesn't look at the form guide, it simply rearranges the entire field. With so much still at stake, with everything now riding on this one event, during times of great uncertainty, Luke writes to provide certainty for us. What we predicted doesn't happen. And what we never predicted does. And that, friends, is the simple message of Luke's gospel. It is profoundly simple, but not simplistic. Those who should, don't. And those who shouldn't, do. In the lead up to Christmas at Salt Church, we're looking at Luke's gospel in a series I've called Don't Believe the Hype. We're looking at the birth of Jesus and the events and the reactions surrounding his birth. Luke's simple message about Jesus can so easily be lost at this time of year. It can be easily misinterpreted, easily misrepresented, easily mis 
understood, especially at this time of year when there's so much hype and excitement about. I mean, after all, friends, it's almost Christmas. And with so much now going on and so much more still yet to do, Luke writes his biography about the life of Jesus so that you don't have to guess the future, so that you don't have to roll the dice, so that you don't have to run the risk, so that you don't have to play the odds. He writes so that you might have certainty. Can you see that with me? Chapter 1, verse 1, Luke's Gospel. You got your Bible there? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. It has always struck me as a great irony that while Luke writes about the life of Jesus, a carefully ordered and well-examined account, so that you may have certainty concerning all of these things, that no one is certain about who Theophilus was. Luke writes for certainty, for sure, but we're uncertain about who it is that he's writing to. Now, there are a few theories about who Theophilus was. He could be a made-up person. In Greek, the name Theophilus means lover of God. And so Luke's gospel could be addressed to all who do and all who would be lovers of God. According to ancient historian Josephus, Theophilus served as a high priest between 37 and 41 AD. But if this is that Theophilus, Josephus' high priestly Theophilus, then that would date him as too early for Luke's account. There was also a Roman official named Theophilus, which would account for the title then, Most Excellent Theophilus. And if I was a gambling man, he's the one that I'd be backing. But no matter who Theophilus was historically, Luke's actually writing, friends, for us. Luke writes for us. He writes an orderly account about the life of Jesus so that you don't have to guess about him anymore. He writes so that you may have certainty. See it there, verse 4, which is why he explains so much about detail. Luke is clear and precise to be accurate so that we can locate what he's saying within context. See it with me, won't you? Chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he and his wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name... Sorry, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. Luke introduces us here to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But before we get to meet them, he wants us to understand the historical context here. He wants us to understand the present situation. Because nothing ever happens in history in isolation. History always takes place in time and space. And so the words, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, it's not just a historical marker, not just a historical date marker, although let's be clear, it is that also. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, friends, is also a context. And the context is this. These were dark days for the people of Israel. These were times of great uncertainty. Why? Well, because King Herod was a monster. 
His name ought to send chills down our spine. With the help of two Roman legions in 37 BC, <coughs> pardon me, Herod came to power in a bloodbath. Herod is the guy who murdered his own wife. He murdered his two brothers-in-law and he murdered his mother-in-law as well. And while you might contemplate doing the same after lunch on Christmas Day, Herod actually went through with it. Herod ordered the prominent citizens of the people of Israel to be gathered up into the Hippodrome and following the news of Herod's death to have them all executed. Why? Just so that there would be mourning in Israel when he died. Herod is the same guy in Matthew chapter 2 that when he heard that there was another king who'd been born in Judea, ordered the slaughter of all boys aged 2 and under just so that he could rule unopposed. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, isn't just a date marker, Luke chapter 1 verse 5, it is a context. And these are dark days of great uncertainty, dark days of deep sadness and desperate longing, a sense of hopelessness. And it's here that we meet Zechariah. Zechariah serves in the temple as a priest, he comes from a priestly background and so does his wife Elizabeth. We're told that they're both righteous before God and that they both walk blamelessly in all of the Lord's commandments. So you might anticipate then that their lives were full of endless happiness and one blissful moment of blessing after another. But there's a deep sadness to them as well, Elizabeth and Zechariah, a dark pain that is attached to their own personal suffering. You see, they both have a longing for more. Look there, verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. They're both righteous, they're both servants, they're both blameless, but Elizabeth is barren. And when we hear the, word, hear the Bible say the word barren, well, it's usually pregnant with significance. Add to that, Elizabeth is also old and both of them are well advanced in years and suddenly now, Elizabeth's story is starting to sound just a little bit familiar to us. I mean, the whole thing with God's promises started with an elderly barren couple, didn't it? And suddenly we're back at the beginning of the story. At least that's the bigger context that's going on to this present one. You see, there's always a bigger story being told, friends than the ones that we find ourselves living in and the one that we're often confused by. God first spoke of countless descendants to a childless couple named Abraham and Sarah. And now, like Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth are waiting in expectant hope. But Zechariah now serves at the temple and he's on priestly duty in the Jerusalem temple. A crowd of people have gathered there to pray because it's now the hour to offer incense when people would gather. In the moment, in that moment, it's the moment that he's been waiting for. Look there, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. See it there, together the priests cast lot to see who it is who burns the incense inside of the temple. And finally, Zechariah gets his dream shot. He draws the third lot. The odds have fallen finally in his favour. It is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him, a career highlight. 
He gets to go in where others haven't. Possibly the greatest day of his life, he enters into the inner sanctuary of the temple. This is what he's been waiting for. This moment that he's been waiting to serve in, it is the moment he's been anticipating. But he wasn't anticipating what happens next. You see, not only his dreams are answered, but his prayers are being answered too. Because waiting for him inside the temple is the angel Gabriel. The word angel simply means messenger, and Gabriel has a message for Zachariah from God. Gabriel says what every angel says when they first make an appearance in the Bible, don't be afraid, but then says more. Verse 13, don't be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Friends, it's really important that you look closely there because the details here are really important. Don't miss them. It's a message from God, after all. God's answering Zechariah's prayers. Can you see that? Elizabeth's going to have a baby, and the baby will be a boy, and so his name is to be John. And it's all going to be great. See it there? Great joy and great gladness, great numbers rejoicing at his birth, great he will be before the Lord. But now things start to get just a little bit specific, probably a little too specific, verse 15. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The promised child will be named John and he is not allowed to drink wine or strong drink. But I reckon Zachariah might have been ready for a couple himself. Not that you should give alcohol to a baby, that seems like a very strange thing to say, doesn't it? But I mean, the details here are pretty specific, aren't they? The kid's not even born yet. And his whole life is already mapped out before him. Zechariah goes in, he lights up the incense, he gets enlightened, and gets enlightened about what it is that God's actually up to in Israel. There are so many questions here. Questions that Zechariah could have asked Gabriel. Clarifying questions. Curious questions like, how will he turn Israel to the Lord? Who is it that he's going to go before? What do you mean by the spirit and power of Elijah? But Zechariah doesn't ask any of those questions. None of those obvious questions come to mind for him. No open questions, no curious questions, no pure questions, no, what do you mean, Gabriel? No, Zechariah wants proof. Look there, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How shall I know this? How shall I know this? This righteous man, this blameless man, this priest of Israel standing before an angel of the Lord in the inner sanctuary of the temple doesn't ask, what do you mean? But says, what are you talking about? Just look at who he is. Just look at where he is. Just look at where he's come from. Here's a guy who should. He should get it. But he doesn't. 
Here's a guy who won't believe that there is another story going on other than the one that he's currently living in. I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah cannot see beyond himself. He can't believe beyond his present circumstances. So listen now to Gabriel's response instead. Verse 19. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Friends, that blank page in your Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that blank page, it represents four centuries of silence. Now God speaks again through the angel Gabriel, but still God's word in Israel is met with unbelief. It was because of Israel's unbelief that God didn't speak to them. And now, because of Zechariah's unbelief, Zechariah won't speak either. The people don't know what's happened to him. He's been inside that temple for a long time now and Zechariah can't explain it to them because he couldn't believe what had happened either. Zechariah is forced to play mum until Elizabeth will finally become one. Even Elizabeth is quiet, keeps secret about her own pregnancy. But notice, friends, not until Zechariah goes home, it's not until he goes home that Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Did you notice that? Those who should, don't. These guys should get it. But they don't. Those who should, don't. But those who shouldn't, do. Six months go by and Elizabeth is still pregnant with John when Gabriel is sent to Nazareth. Nazareth is an obscure little town, an out-of-the-way place in the middle of nowhere, a long way from anywhere and from anything of any real significance. It's kind of like Tambourine Mountain. Wow. And Gabriel's message is for a nobody. No one significant, no one important, no one special. Gabriel spoke to a priest named Zechariah. I mean, Mary, she's a random But there is something about Mary. Twice Luke tells us that she's a virgin in verse 27. Can you see that? (coughs) Pardon me, not even married yet, but pledged to a guy whose name is Joseph. And again, there's nothing particularly significant or outstanding about Joseph apart from the fact that he's from the house of David. And God made promises to David, didn't he? 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled... You will lie down with your fathers and I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God promised David the throne of Israel forever. God will be father to this promised son of David. The king promised to David is God's promised son. Those who shouldn't do. Mary is highly favoured by God. She's even told that God's with her there in verse 28. 
After also telling her, don't be afraid, Gabriel tells Mary she's having a baby. And again, the details are very important, so don't miss them. Friends, this is a message from God. God's fulfilling his promises to David, he says. Mary's going to have a baby. The baby is a boy, so name him Jesus. And it's going to be great. Great he will be. Great is his throne over Israel. Great is his kingdom forever. See, God is telling a bigger story than the one that we're living in. In order for us to understand what God's now doing, we need to look beyond our present circumstances. And that's exactly what Mary does. Unlike doubtful Zachariah, who wanted to make sense of everything that was before him, Mary asks for a simple explanation. Verse 34, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Fair enough too. Unlike Elizabeth's pregnancy with John... Nothing happened until Zechariah returned home, but Mary's pregnancy with Jesus will not be requiring Joseph's services at all. After all, Luke is clear that Mary is a virgin. The power of God will overshadow her, we're told, by Gabriel. The Holy Spirit will cause Mary's pregnancy. This Jesus is the Son of God. And if all of that just sounds impossible, a bit of a long shot, against the odds, if you can't see how that works or even scientifically how that might actually even be possible, can I just remind you that a barren Elizabeth is now six months pregnant and Luke says that nothing is impossible for God. Zachariah should, but he doesn't. Mary shouldn't, but she does. And if you're one of the shouldn'ts, that do, apart from God's promises to you in Christ, if you've realised that you also are really nothing all that special, even during times of uncertainty and uncertain circumstances, when there is a pain attached to your suffering, in these deep and dark days of sadness and desperate longing, when deliverance and hope seems impossible, I've got a message for you. Don't be afraid. God highly favours you. God is with you. It's not good luck that brings certainty, friends. Certainty isn't found in predictions. Certainty comes through surrender. Surrender takes the posture of service, servant. Consider Mary's response, won't you? Verse 38. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Spoken before his birth by Jesus' mother, let it be to me according to your word. Anticipate the same words that will be spoken by Jesus before his death. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When we can't see or understand our place in life, certainty comes when we believe that God has a bigger story to tell. And rather than resisting God to make sense of everything before us right now, it's surrender that invites us to trust God as he works out his promises within us. And so no matter what our present circumstances are, no matter how deep or dark the night might be, God is at work. 
you can trust him. May it be according to his word. Will you pray with me? Father, it's getting that time of year where we sing, let every heart prepare him room. And so we pray that you would begin the process of preparing our hearts in this Christmas season. There are so many other things that want to take our attention, that demand our thoughts and our time and our money. Lord, would you help us to be servants of you and to surrender ourselves to you and what it is that you're doing? And while we might not understand what's happening, while we might not be able to make sense of the situation we find ourselves in, while we're unclear about what the future will bring, we want to thank you that you're a faithful God who keeps your promises and who promises to be at work not only in us but also through us for the good of your kingdom, Lord Jesus, because you are a great king who will rule forever. So help us this morning, Lord Jesus, in these times of uncertainty to have certainty in the knowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, our King and our Saviour. Help us to be his servants and may you be at work in us according to your word. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.